0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworkings biweekly podcast. I'm here with Fine Woodworkings Mike Pekovich. Hey guys, Jeff Rose. Hello. And I am your host, Ben Strano. Today we're joined by the director of the Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking, Bob Van Dyke. Can you make any more noise over there, Bob?
1: I can try. Alright. I just I'm still wondering though why it's called Shop Talk Live when we're recording it. And it's highly edited. And that too. So that just
0: <laughs> got edited out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll be surprised at things I can uh, make you uh, say. I'm sure. Thanks. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: Alright, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalk at shoptalkattaught.com Any links or articles we mention will be on this episode's show notes page, which can be found at shoptalklive.com If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. And I am about to make a little extra room in my garage or in my shop. What's up? What, maybe like two years ago, Bob did an article. <laughs>
1: <laughs> At least two years ago. It
0: was, uh, it was in, ep- or not episode 254, it was in issue 254, and you did a sharpening box, right?
1: Yeah, did a couple of them.
0: And, yeah. and one of those sharpening boxes somehow made it into my cubicle, I think Mm. by you, and you said, Bob said, give this away.
1: Huh. I
2: don't know why I didn't keep it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You said it doesn't work anyway.
0: (laughs) So it sat in my cubicle for a while, and then we brought it up to your shop, and we did a video about giving it away. Something, yeah. And then it went back into my shop, and I've moved it around like twenty eight hundred times, and I trip over and go stupid. Okay, and,
1: and rather than just like using it,
0: well, I wanted to use it, yeah. but I felt like that would kind of be stealing it because yeah. it was meant for giving away to the fine readers of, fi- of fine woodworking.
1: Oh, exactly.
0: So we are finally
1: doing this. We're doing it. All right. So I don't even know what it looks like.
0: It's right there. <laughs> Not oh, that yeah. one though. Oh yeah, it's not no, quite that one. So
1: that's the one that I use every day.
0: It's almost, almost just like yeah. that one. But <clears throat> if you want a chance to win a cover piece from Fine it. Woodworking, that's <laughs> this it. chance does not come up very often. Leave a comment in the show notes page uh, of this episode. And not only are you going to do that, you have to leave a comment and you have to go to, what's your website? Schoolofwoodworking.com. Go to schoolofwoodworking.com and sign up for Bob's email list. On the left-hand side, I think there's a uh, thing to sign up. So if you go do both of those things, we're going to enter you to win the uh, cover piece from issue 254, Bob's Stone go Sharpening Box. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if you sign up on the school website, you're guaranteed to get at least three, but probably no more than five emails from <laughs> me a year, because that's about how many I do. You're not
0: real <laughs> consistent, we'll say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, open house is coming up. Oh, there's not enough people in this class. Okay, I'll maybe I'll get around to doing a, doing an email. Nah, that didn't happen, Bob's. Marketing department is working tirelessly <laughs>
0: <laughs> up in Manchester, Connecticut. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's just go straight into the questions. I had a discussion marked out, but we went long last time, so here we go. All right. This question is from uh, a friend of the show, Amy Costello. I have been using, and it's a stropping question, and finally there's a stropping person all right. on the show. Instead of strapping. <laughs> 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 All right.
1: okay, go there.
0: I've been using a piece of vegetable tanned leather with green waxy honing compound as a strop. I start by rubbing compound onto the shiny side of the leather. However, when I go to strop my carving knives, the pressure from the, my blade compresses the compound and it flakes off. Is there something wrong with my compound or am I doing something wrong?
1: Um the answer you know it's funny because i've seen that happen um stropping is one of those things that uh gets people going um like like in sharpening uh on any, any sharpening discussion but then you get the people go oh my god how could you strop something um that would be me <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and i You know, stuff that I learned, uh, you know, years ago uh, from early fine woodworking magazines, probably. Um, Well, there you go. There you go. That was all wrong. (laughs) Um, No, but it's – stropping is one of those things. You either do it or not. And – It's true. I do it sometimes. I don't always. And it's something I learned. I learned from Phil Lowe, Will Neptune – that's where I kind of go, well, yeah, these people that say you can't strop, uh, those good two guys know what they're talking about.
2: I think of stropping in terms yeah. of carving tools more than edge tools like chisels and planes. I think it, it's, it, I think stropping carving tools is, I think that's par for the course. I think yeah. probably everybody does that.
1: Uh, pretty <laughs> much, but um, stropping uh, regular edge tools, bench, tool, bench tools, call them that. Um I don't have a problem with it. The idea that oh you're dubbing the edge over. Yes, which you are. Um what you're actually doing it you know, like <laughs> basically you can't dub it over so much that uh you know, um you're gonna ruin ruin it because you ha- you have to go back and resharpen. Let's re- anyway. let's
2: rephrase that. You don't dub it over enough to where you ruin it, but I've seen the, – the, the biggest problem I've seen with stropping um, – yeah, and I, you know, you are, I think – you are rounding over a small – anywhere from a really small amount to a fair amount. And I think you especially get in trouble if your technique is not great on the back of, say, a chisel, which mm-hmm. has to be dead flat to work. If yeah. you put any round over at that front edge –
1: Oh, and it, a back bevel, yeah.
2: Yeah it, yeah, it doesn't function the way it's supposed to function.
1: But what happens... Yeah, I mean, you can't do that instead of sharpening or in place of sharpening. Right. I mean, a strop is great because a strap takes you from um, really sharp to screaming sharp. And it's very small difference, but it's a noticeable difference. Um, will... Neptune talks about, I mean, I learned from him what his take on it was that when you're sharpening something, it doesn't matter what the grit is, you're still going to have little microscopic scratches. There's a little bit of a give in the leather strop. And that little bit of give is actually sharpening, is actually shining the surface of the scratch, if you can picture that. You've got this scratch, call it a V. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but that V is a little bit rough. And that little, little bit of honing compound is bringing that surface up a little bit shinier. Um, okay. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's, that's right. I, I, I don't know the science behind it, but it, it makes sense. Um, but what I do see is that there is a little bit of a difference. And when what I do, what I do usually is, if I'm sharpening uh, and I'm using a honing guide, um, and I'm doing a chisel or a plane iron, the last thing I do is, while it's still in the honing guide, I'll take two or three passes on the strop, because you're at exactly the right angle. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, if you're if you're at the wrong angle, and that's when people, you know, you're too high of an angle and you're dubbing the edge over, that's when you're screwing yeah. stuff up.
2: Do you hit the back with the strop as well?
1: I'll pull it straight back.
2: And just keep it dead flat.
1: Oh, my left hand is on top of the chisel or the iron pushing down. Right. So, yeah, you have to be doing that. Yeah, for sure. Are you pulling yeah. the burr off on your stone or on your strop? I do it on the stone. Okay. Yeah, I do it on on the on my my whatever my finest stone is. Okay. You know, so t-
0: the the burr is gone, so you're not going to oh, yeah. be gouging your your strop then. No. Okay. So, Mike, you did a really good job not screaming during that no, strop cost. Oh, whatever gets you there. Okay. Good.
2: The thing for me, I recommend against it because. Um, you are sort of—you're messing up the geometry of that blade to the point where you might have some short-term benefits for honing, but once that edge starts to get dubbed over, you have to remove more material once you do go back to sharpening. Um, and I just think it's like—it it's it has long-term consequences if you're heavy-handed about
1: it. If you're heavy- That's <laughs> the thing. If you rely on that— Rather than if you rely on that to resharpen things, rather than just resharpen. I mean, right. I I like hardly ever like a like a plane iron. I wouldn't even consider taking it, you know, restropping that, you know, while I'm using it. I if you're wouldn't. pulling it out, you're going to your stones. Yeah, of course, okay. of course. And yeah. the same, even with a chisel. I mean, I'll I'll like. Once in a while, I might hit it while I'm working with it, mm-hmm. but I'll do it as a last step in the sharpening process, much more than, you know, intermediate or in between while I'm working with mm-hmm. it. Right. Whereas with carving, that's what you're doing with a strop lots of times. Cause you're, cause you're, hitting you're hitting it, hitting touching it while it. you're Erotically. working, you're refreshing yeah. that edge a little bit. And that's the difference. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So
2: I strop my sandpaper just gives it that extra little do you, do you sharpness. The,
1: do you keep the – which side is up? Because that's a big thing. Do you have the, the – The suede the, side? The or? suede side of the sandpaper?
2: Well, the suede gets – The suede gets, side of the sandpaper, huh? Right? What, what the suede does is it gets between the grits and it polishes the sides of the grits.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's – everyone knows that. <laughs> oh.
2: So what about Amy's question about – Yeah, I know. Stuff, yeah, like, I know.
1: Was that?
0: <laughs> sorry. Uh-uh.
2: about you don't use the green stuff. Uh, yeah.
0: I
1: it's
2: the white. You stuff use you white use? stone.
1: No, I use the yellow. Uh, yellowstone. I use herbs. Yellowstone. Okay. I thought it was herbs. yellowstone. Herb. herb. <laughs> well, and I always wanted to, you know, because a Yellowstone, um, you know, that's what I that's what I've used, but it's actually pink, and. His phone number used to be on the package. Herb's Herb Dunkel, I think his last name was, was on the package. And I always wanted to call him up and say, why is it Yellowstone if it's pink? But then I heard that he passed away, so it's another opportunity lost. <laughs> but I was looking last night online because I wanted to find out more information about this question. And it's amazing how much stuff there is online about... Uh, home, about you know, um, stropping. stropping and compounds and all, and I actually printed out this whole sheet of all of the different ones. I've seen that one, and I left it on my desk. I meant to bring it, <laughs> yeah. but it turns out that Herb Dunkel's son has a honing compound also that is blue. So I don't know. That's huh. I have to find out a little bit more okay, about yeah. it. Yeah, but,
2: and use a piece of like horsehide or something.
1: I use um, horse butt leather, yep. and horse butt leather is the hardest no stretch, and it's the leather that goes along the spine of a horse, uh, and it's really, um, you know, there's no stretch. You can pull, pull, try and pull it and it doesn't do anything, and so you're going to get less, much less compression, much less dubbing mm-hmm. with that. Uh, it's one of those details. I'm not going to worry about if I didn't have any horse butt leather. Oh my god, I can't use it. No, I got a whole box full of leather that. Yeah, you know. I don't know,
0: man, because I, I bought,
1: <clears throat> I
0: bought like I think it was Trend sells a little piece of you know eight by three leather. Uh-huh. It was kind of expensive for yeah. a little piece of eight by three leather, but it was it was horse butt, and um, that was at home or at the workshop or something like that and then in the other one i had just gone to tandy and i bought you know a quarter of a height or something for Mm -hmm. lots of stuff because that's what you do yeah and uh i started using that as a strop and it was just some random leather and it was way too soft Mm -hmm. and it was dubbing
1: instantly almost Interesting. I wonder if it was really thick. If that makes yeah, a difference. Yeah,
0: it was. It was thicker and yeah. and soft. So yeah. I would definitely, you know, if I was going to go out and buy more leather for stropping, I, I think I would. I'd search out
1: the horse butt leather yeah. is definitely better. I mean, let's let's be honest.
0: It's it's like a ten dollar expense compared to
1: a five dollar expense. Yeah, so. I mean, it's it's not. You know, I mean. I look at that kind of thing and go, yeah, you know how much money I spend in Starbucks every week? You know, a difference is like, so what? Um, Tens of dollars. Yeah. You know, it's, but, but I think the, it all works, you know, uh, and we're really talking minute details here, Mm -hmm. minute differences. The does, can you strop? Can you not strop? You know, that whole argument. Uh, it's like pins first tails yeah. first Absolutely. it all works yeah. it all works you know so it's really kind of what you what you want to do what you feel good about
2: and then stropping stropping's country cousin is the diamond paste on a piece of mdf for which wood. is a,
1: which is a type oh! which is a type of strop right yeah and and it's in the list uh, was about, look at i was looking cousin. last night <laughs> it was in the list of strops yeah and it was funny cuz i was like wow i haven't used that stuff in years but that's awesome that's, you know, that's what I use. One micron, half micron. Uh, I used to do it on MDF, and then I started doing it on a piece of hard maple. Just mm-hmm. plain a piece of hard maple with a hand plane, so you know, perfect shaving, and then uh, charge it with the diamond paste. It's awesome. Mm. Yeah, works really well. So we still have an answer to question. And, and, no. <laughs> and I've been looking, and I was looking for. Um, oh, that's a better picture than what you sent me. Same picture. Uh, yeah. Um, I've seen that on my own straps a couple of times where I've done that. And I, I don't know if it's the compound or the leather. Now, I checked around and that's why I was looking online because I wanted to see, is there something about this? Because this has happened to me, too. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things I just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, whatever. Um, and I talked to Mary May uh, about it also because I know that Name she used, she uses a strap. And I said, you know, have you seen this? And she said, no, nah, I really haven't seen it. But um, both of our take on it was maybe it's just putting too much. On it, you only need a little, little bit.
2: And this looks pretty, it's like thick enough to where when it chips off, there's a definite thickness to it. Yeah,
1: and I've seen that happen. I mean, I've done it, you know, so it might just be that there's too much goop on it. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I wonder about is, because I I looked online, I was talking about putting a little bit of oil Mm. on the back of the leather. On the, Not on the front. What?
0: On the suede and side of the leather. On
1: the suede side of the leather. was talking about putting oil on the back of it, and then it would it was a couple days process because you put a little bit of oil on the back, and then you come back and you put a little bit more on, and when it finally starts to just seep through the front face, stop. So it was basically saturating the yeah. leather without getting it all over the, the front. And I'm like, that's something I might try just to just to yeah. further my knowledge and see about it because uh, that 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 made a little bit of sense. And Mary said that she had a, a strop that was a powder that she put a little bit of oil on the leather just to keep it stuck down, mm-hmm. and it worked. So that kind of makes sense too. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't think it's the defective. Um, honing compound. I don't. I don't think that's it, but my, it could be because it comes from all over the place. That stand, that green stuff.
0: My yeah. only question is, looking at the picture on the big screen here, there's a little bit more grain to this leather yeah. than you see on horsebutt normally. So I'm wondering if this is a piece of leather that might have
2: either flexible or maybe it's stretching, or you think it could be. Treated
1: somehow. It might, yeah. Huh. Well, I wonder. I wonder about that. I was wondering about the vegetable tanned. Uh, if that was an issue, because what's the other one? Chromium tanned or something like that? Chrome tanned. They, that they just
2: use like entrails, right? I don't know. Like it's like true tanning. That's like nasty.
1: <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah. But there's another. There's another uh, another process of tanning. Uh, and I don't know enough about it. I've, mm. I've heard I've heard it, but I don't know anything about it.
0: Well, Amy, sorry, that was of so, no use whatsoever. Didn't, didn't really.
1: She's <laughs> we, like listening to the okay,
2: Get they're another get piece of to it. leather. <laughs> yeah. it's, coming, it's coming, it's <laughs>
0: coming. They even got Bob on it.
1: Try getting a different piece of leather. Yeah.
2: Sorry, Amy. Keep trying to let us know what works for you. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Ah, that's too bad. All right. Yeah.
0: Question number two, and this one's from Matt. I have some ten inch wide eight quarter African mahogany that I have been re-sawing into thinner boards. I start by jointing one face, then one edge, and then re-sawing, usually down the middle. There's a good amount of tension in the boards, so after re-sawing, they have a decent twist. Do I need to let the boards reacclimate before I rejoint them and plane them, or can I do that immediately? Also, would I be better off not jointing the face and resawing to a center line rather than using the bandsaw fence? It seems like a waste of time getting that face flat just so that I could use the bandsaw fence. So let's answer the first part resaw, twist, let it sit, or just go for it?
1: Definitely let it sit. I mean, and you were about to say just go for it. If you're about, if if, you know, you're taking a piece of wood, an eight-quarter piece of wood, and let's say you're resawing it in half, and it was flat and square, and you just completely changed the equilibrium, everything in that board. You just completely, completely changed it, Uh, cut all the fibers, that sort of thing, all those tensions. Um, If you just ignore it and just start flat, you know, plane it to, then it's kind of like, well, yeah, it's going to be twisted. Uh, If you let it sit around for a few days or a week, if you can, and re-flatten it and thickness plane it, then it's going to be and stay a lot flatter. Unless you are so thin that trying to flatten that was a waste of time anyway. Because try and, try trying to flatten a piece at three-eighths inch thick. Right. And that's not going to happen. Right. Yeah,
2: um, yeah I guess it, it depends on the type of resawing and the type of sort of warping you're getting. Normally, if the pieces sort of vertically cup towards each other and then along the length, they cup towards each other as well. That indicates to me that there was sort of a rushed uh, kiln-drying process. And so the outside of the board is basically case hardened and that there's a lot of tension built up on the outside. But when both sides are case hardened, that's fine. But when you rip it down the center, um, that's when it really sort of takes off. So I don't think any amount of setting is going to allow that board to straighten back up because I think it's just built into the board through the drawing process. So what I like to do is, at least flatten that outside face, which is the cupped one, which is weird. You don't think of putting that cup face on the joiner. But by um, planing that outside face uh, with the push pad right in the center along the length of the board so the front tip and rear tip are elevated until it gets flat, it does two things. You're removing a lot of that case-hardened stock from the outside. And also, as you're doing that, the board tends to correct itself flat. Um, it tends to decup so that um, you're actually by the time you have the outside flat, the inside face a lot of times is cupped, um, not nearly as much as it was before that. So I mean that's why I think so. It's, this
0: is immediately after resawing. Then? Yeah, so after okay.
2: resawing, I'll do that. But then it's, and the
1: cup is up. Yes, on the joiner, right. The cup is Which up. is opposite from how you would normally do it.
2: Right, because what happens uh-huh. if the cup is down or that inside face is down, yeah. as you keep removing material from the inside face, that outside case hardened face is going to want to cut more and more yeah. toward the yeah. center and Makes it just never gets there. So, um yeah, I mean, I think boards do need to sort of relax over time, and they kind of do their thing, so resting is good. But at the same time, if there's a lot of internal tensions, I think you need to try to correct that as much
1: as possible. That case hardening thing, we we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and it's been on my list to, to play with, to try it, as Mike was talking about that. Uh, the case hardening on the outside and then resawing, basically taking like if you took it in 3 so you have something in the middle of the board in the middle of the 8 quarter board um and his point there was because there's no case hardening on either face right you take that out and it just it comes out and it just stays dead flat right so and it's one of those I've wanted to try that just to see for myself because it makes complete total sense
0: okay so the inner the 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 inner third has no case hardening. Right. So that's going to stay flat. Right.
1: And then the outer faces are case hardened. Yeah, they'll both cup, so they cup towards the center. Yeah. yeah. And which they do. They always cup towards the center. Yeah. They don't they don't go the other way. Right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah.
0: Okay, so so when you're dealing with case hardened wood, sure sign is that it's it's cup towards the center. Um but what if perfectly dried wood. I could see anything having some sort of a twist to it. If there's no cupping and just a huh. twist yeah. after you you resaw, what's the problem there? It's if it's not case hardening.
1: Well, there you've got you you think of a think of this board or a tree and think of these fibers that are full, like full length under tension and you and you just cut those fibers when it became a board so now the tensions are completely changed within that board so it's going to move and it's kind of like releasing the strings you know and then if you cut it again um you know they're going to change again yes Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so that's that's how i that's how i visualize it yeah you know do you ever resaw and it's just flat
2: yes air dried stock yeah it's just like butter. It just falls off and it's dead flat.
1: Yeah, you've been telling me that and I just – I hate it because I don't have any yeah. air-dried stuff <laughs> to, to play. And I was like, damn.
2: So, yeah, and that bites me in the butt because I'll do these boxes. My technique I'll talk about later kind of utilizes this where I need really, really thin um, – pieces typically of say of walnut i'll I'll make a mitered liner to fit inside of a case and and that liner is often like three sixteenths thick and so i'll get a piece of air dried eight quarter walnut and i'm just like taking these just wafer thin slices off off and they just stay flat so um and then i say, bob okay now i need a bunch of liner stock three sixteenths and he's like (laughs) Talking
0: about.
2: <laughs> so he goes, do you know, I have to start with like four quarter stock to get like two pieces <laughs> of three sixties. Six. And, and so it's, yeah, it's a
1: different thing. Yeah. Um,
0: you do, you do probably more milling than anyone we know because you're preparing.
1: You mean for the school? Yeah. Yeah. W- well, it depends on the class, you know, I mean, in, if you're doing a, like a week long class, making a piece of furniture, um, and if you start off with just, here's the stock, roughs on stock, there's no way you're going to be finished or even close to finished by the end of the week in five days. The other thing is um, most of the time we're pre-milling stuff and pre-mill it, sticker it, and then finish mill it Uh, and then start dimensioning it, you know, and that takes that pre-milling, ideally it's sitting there for a week in stickers, you know, I mean, realistically it doesn't always happen, but you know, and like when we did that shape and high chest class, those, we did 17 of those things. Um, and we, it was all five quarter wide five quarter cherry. And we pre-milled everything. We did three three millings on every stick of, of, of wood. How far
2: did you take that down? What was the final thickness?
1: Uh, seven-eighths.
2: Right. So you're going from inch and a quarter down to seven-eighths. In and you're,
1: three passes. Yeah. And you're taking
2: times. stock off each face. So okay. it isn't this whole resawing equilibrium thing. But just as you're removing material, yeah. it changes those stresses. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's going to move a
1: little bit. Which, and, and the stickering, um, you know, that's... It's important. it's really important and what what you do is you have you know you resaw it, you sticker it. and basically you put a straight edge across it and you know a couple of day, you know two days later, you put a straight edge across the cup. and let's say it's a you know 30 second of an inch. And you come across, you come in the next day and you check it again. And it's a little bit more than a 30 second. And then you come again and it's like a 16th. And then the next day you check it and it's still a 16th. Well, when it stops okay. changing, then it's done. Huh. Okay. You know, and then ideally that's what you do. When you move on. Yeah. yeah. And then, but then. Yeah. And there's more, of course. Um, and I see that I was thinking about this. It's probably not going to come up, but I but I'm going to throw it in anyway. I see all the time these um, people that are taking finished parts, finished parts that they have. Maybe they haven't cut the joints yet, but they're all finished, dimension and everything, and they're stickered on the bench, stickered and the whole project stickered. And you go. Who would do that? Why would? Why are you doing that? And my question is always: Why are you doing that? Oh, well, it's to let it you know breathe and stuff. You look at a piece of wood. and What's the idea? What's the purpose of stickering?
0: To let air pass over all sides equally. For what reason?
1: To let it so, move. Yeah. To let it to let it move to let it warp if it's going to. And the idea is now's the time to do that. So, and that's all great. If you haven't done any finish milling, if, but once it's done and it's going to become a furniture part, what's the last thing you want it to do? Move. Exactly. Yeah. So the last thing you want to do is sticker it. Yeah. You seal it instead. You so stack it and wrap it.
0: I've, I've, been stickering it and wrapping it?
1: Stickering it and <laughs> wrapping it? The worst of all worlds. <laughs> well, Belt well, and no. suspender, it's... man! <laughs> Completely opposite. So, so each, like, you know. like
0: stickering it and then taking
1: cellophane yeah. and wrapping Making the crap sure out of it. Making sure that, yeah, so that's, <laughs> uh, that's okay. <laughs>
2: well, actually, we talked about this a couple yeah. podcasts back because I was saying how I would sticker through the entire process. Uh-huh. And because of you're doing, no, you're sort of stacking flat and then yeah. covering the top of it, even just weighting down the top with a piece of MDF or something, yeah. it keeps it more stable. Um, I think the reason why I always stickered it was because the worst case scenario is if you just had a board and it was just like laying down on a bench top by itself, oh, yeah. and then that one surface. You know, that's always going to move. So the idea of stickering is always keeping air around, not so much to make it move, but just to sort of not have create any to have one uneven side that moisture yeah. faces. Uh-huh. So it's like, yeah, if you're going to go flat, you have to commit to it and make sure that all those surfaces are oh, covered yeah. up.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, the last, yeah. And even when you're stickering, and that's something a lot of people don't do, when you're stickering something, the top board... In the pile, you put stickers across that and you put a piece of plywood across that. Oh, there you go. So that now that even that top board has the same, you know, half inch of airspace as everything else in Mm. the pile rather than having, you know, just being hanging out there to the end of the wind. You should start school. Nah, that'd be crazy. It's too much work. (laughs) (laughs) You get there's people so asking much, you questions all so the time. Much more, yeah. <laughs> God. There's so much more to all of this than you think, but it's so much simpler That's what's too. cool is there's so much that you, you know, years ago I used to think I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Nah, not even <laughs> close. Because you just find out how much you don't know. Yeah. And yeah. it's humbling. It
0: really is. That's like my daily nine-to-five job. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. sit down and you're like, no, you don't know anything. Yep, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm used to it at least now. That's
1: what happened. Yeah. I mean, that's how... When I get into period furniture, it was like, oh, God. You know, I had no idea all of this stuff even existed, let alone knew anything about it. Yeah. And now I have to learn all of that. It's like when Mike Maselli did the, his first uh, upholstery class uh-huh. at the school. He did this two-hour PowerPoint about history and technique and everything. I looked at him when it was done and said, thanks a lot. <laughs> and he goes, what? Didn't you like that? And I said, I was fine with upholstery being just something soft and squishy that you sat on. Now it's this huge, huge subject that I knew nothing about. Now I know even less than I did before. <laughs> uh all right so let's
0: uh let's hit our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week i think you should start bob um you got off
1: easy last time that was you know it was funny because i was thinking about that and i was like okay what are good you know what's a? you know what do i really like to do and uh, just for the record i mean
0: all of ours throughout the history of this show have just been recycled Bob Van Dyke techniques
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. which is just stuff that I've recycled from Steve Lotto okay. Will Neptune, Phil Lowe, anyone else you know <laughs> like, yeah. oh, no, these are ones that I all I thought of every one of them <laughs> yeah so the two I, you know I started to think about it and you know like in general like what I love to do and love to make is like federal style bandings um, decorative bandings, just because they are so counterintuitive, they hurt your mind trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah, you know, it's just like, oh God,
2: make you these know? blocks, cut them at an angle, glue them back together, cut them at an angle, sand shade
1: them, then. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and it's just like it's nuts. The the your the reverse engineering that you have to do yeah. is crazy. Um, but what I You know, the answer to the question is actually was not the federal style bandings, because that was just really a big, huge subject. What I really like, and I think about it, you know, last year at Fine Woodworking Live, I was doing the the fixing mistakes, and that's a kick, when Mm -hmm. you can fix mistakes and make it so that it completely goes away, and the... What I really like to do is, you know, I was thinking that um, tool chest that I uh, that I was doing earlier this summer with you. Yes, and I screwed up that drawer, uh, put the the lock mortise on the wrong edge, like an idiot. Um, and Wait, what edge could you put it on? On the front edge? I put it on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you get, everyone think, "Oh, I love to see Bob make mistakes." It's just, <laughs> it just hang around class. here for five minutes. <laughs> it doesn't take long. Well, you you can hold your breath, <laughs> but um, what what I and I played with it and I'm like, "All right, I'm going to fix this so you can't see it." And it's all about the grain. Everything when you're fixing mistakes, it's all about the grain. And this was in, um, I think the drawer front. Yeah, it was quarter sawn white oak. So, okay, you got nice straight grain already. So you can do glue on anything and you're not going to see it. But you go around the corner and you look at the end grain. And the end grain, uh, if you can disguise that. Yeah. And that's what I did. And I took this piece and... Um, matched up the end grain. So I had to plane a bevel in the piece that I was going to glue up, and I'm looking at it, looking at the the, um, the medullary rays, and are they all going the same direction? And is this the, the curvature of the pores? Is that going the same direction as the other stuff? And I spent a ridiculous amount of time uh, doing it, but just because I wanted to. And it's one of those... Okay, you glue it on and you cannot see where it was glued on, you know, unless you look inside where I didn't finish up, uh, <laughs> where, where I screwed up the uh, mortise. But so I decided the, to the, to the outside part you cannot see at all, even if you're looking at the end grain. And that's the kicker is the end grain. So, yeah. so,
0: so, matching the grain, yeah. perfectly on a mistake. But Taking it, the time to to study
1: yeah. all the faces and not just the face, but the end grain yeah. also, because that's the tough one. That's the hard one to to do.
2: That's a problem with something like that. If you do it perfectly, you can't even see it. It's right. like it's this <laughs> yes, yeah, it. yeah, this absence of like positive feedback. So if you show someone. It takes 15 minutes to explain what they can't see and why they don't see it.
1: So, exactly. Yeah,
2: that's yeah. the inverse of calling out your mistakes to someone yeah. in a piece of furniture.
1: Which is the difference between a professional and an amateur woodworker. Yes. You know, the the, the amateur, If if you tell someone wow, that's really a nice table that you made there. I really like it. And the amateur goes, yeah, but I messed up this. And you see how I screwed up the mortise there? And there's a scratch here, and I screwed up the finish and all. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And you tell that a professional, he goes, ah, the table is really nice. I liked what you did. And the guy goes, yep, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll go next. Go next, Ben. All right, my all-time favorite technique of all time for this week involves moving a table saw, and it turns out my parents listen to the podcast, which is interesting. But the more interesting subnote of that is my mom. Just so everyone knows, my mom watches every video that comes out on FindWoodworking.com. That's awesome. To the point where the other day she goes, so I was watching Matt Waida's. Joiner setup video, and it was really interesting how the elevator screws on the <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's are, are reverse
0: threaded. I was like, "What is wrong with you?" She wouldn't <laughs> like you know six months ago. She would have no idea what a joiner is, let alone where it should be. And now she's talking about the reverse thread on elevator screws on a Powermatic joiner. So, side note there, yeah. But um, my father and I were moving. Um, Mike's old table saw, my new table saw into my shop and we were storing it, uh, at the fine woodworking shop down the road and we had used it at a fine woodworking live or something and it wound up going back there and it was finally time to bring it to my shop. So we use the loading dock area. We just shimmy it in, into the back of his pickup truck and, uh, along with a jointer and we get to my house we put his old rickety ramps on the back of his pickup truck. And it turns out my father's been using the same wooden ramps for 40 years. And I put them together and I screw a batten on the bottom to keep them from separating. And I start shimmying the table saw down in one of these ramps, which turns out has always been significantly lighter than the other ramp. <laughs> <laughs> and every time we pick them up, we go, oh, this one's the heavy one. Well, the... The lighter one turns out has a little bit more flex to it. <laughs> and I'm shimmying the table saw down. My my dad's got his foot holding the, the ramp from pulling away. And all of a sudden, that right ramp starts to flex. Oh, uh, no. And the left ramp doesn't. Hey. And this table saw starts tipping away. And I'm screaming and cursing and <laughs> I'm saying all sorts of stuff. And finally, my dad grabs the top of it and we, we get it down. And then I look at this. Big 8-inch joiner on the back of his pickup truck. And I look at these ramps, and I go, joiner lives there now. You'll just have to come over every time I need to join something (laughs) because that's where the joiner lives. It's not getting off the truck. This is the reality. And my dad goes, well, just take that saw bench and stick it under the ramps. There you go. It was as simple as – and it's it's stupid, but it's going to help somebody out there. Mm -hmm. But it is as simple as – Taking a saw bench that I had lying around and sticking it under the ramp and that's that makes the whole the whole mechanism solid as can be
1: a saw bench like a like a hand saw yeah hand saw bench, yeah,
0: yeah, you know yeah, and just stuck under there, I drove a couple screws through the ramp into the saw bench just to uh-huh. make sure it didn't move solid as can be, took the joiner off, no problem, which weighed probably twice as much as the table saw, yeah, and it was just one of those like. You know those moments where your dad just says something and you, you, you're you starting to feel confident in your knowledge base and your experience level in the world and everything. And you're, you struggle and almost throw a table saw on the floor and, you know. And he just goes, why don't you just put that under there? It's as simple as that. That's my all-time favorite technique of all time for possibly
1: ever. It's amazing Listen. how dads get smarter the older <laughs> you <Yeah>. get. <laughs> my father was dumb as a post until i was about 25 years old and all of a sudden he got a brain <laughs> you know it was incredible
2: <laughs> so your technique is listen to your pop
1: yeah, yeah. there you okay. go listen That's to good.
0: your pop if something's got too much flex into it stick something under it as there opposed to just hope yeah. for the best
1: it yeah. reminds me of this when the the guy that i started the school with years ago we he had just gotten a brand new Delta radial arm saw. I think it was a twelve inch. It was really, really nice radial arm saw. And Those words rarely go together. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> but I had used this one. It was incredible how accurate it was and how good it was. And it was on the. He had a pickup truck and we were going to put it in his basement. He's got this pickup truck with a bed liner. Um, and he, it was on the open tailgate, and. He just had to move the truck about two feet, and he did it real gently. And as soon as he put it in gear, that saw went shoot right off the back, bounced off the uh, bounced off the, the driveway, and it never went into the shop. It went directly <laughs> back onto his saw to go down to get fixed. <laughs> Oh, Gravity. yeah.
0: I, I was, I was, that, that table saw was coming away and it was everything I could do to keep oh, it God. from falling. Yeah. And I was thinking like, not only is this like my table saw, but I'll never hear the end of it <laughs> from Mike. <laughs> this is Mike's old table saw. So, yeah. What you got, Mike? Uh, um,
2: <clears throat> nothing as good as those. <laughs> Um, as I alluded to earlier, um, the technique is when I'm building like a case um, with a bunch of interior dividers or drawers and such, rather than trying to work those dividers into the initial construction, I'll just build the case and basically create a mitered liner with the various partitions that I need sort of attached with a – what's that called? A bird's mouth joint. The bird's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that V. The V. So yeah. it's basically, I'm, I'm sort of making a, a mitered box-ish type of thing, and then that slides into the um, interior as a single unit. Um, and again, it lets you work really, really thin and keep your your the dimensions of the stock really light. Um, and it lets you sort of not have to worry about exactly how you want to partition things as you're building and gluing up the case. And that's pretty much a trick from... I think like a traditional spice boxes are the in, internals are divided that way. I don't think there's the the liner that fits in. No,
1: but but they're done the same way. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: So and I think I, I picked up that technique from a spice box article that Steve Latta mm-hmm. did. You know, ten or fifteen mm-hmm. years back. That that whole bird's mouth joint,
1: which is which is really nice and and very simple to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Fussy, but but simple. Yeah. Router. Can it be fussy and simple at the same time? Well, it's f- simple, but you know, I mean, lots of stuff is you like know, a miter fuzzy.
2: joint is the simplest joint, but it's really fussy. Yeah. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah, good point. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you have to, you have to, if you have the like, it's done with a with a router, a router table, and you know, dial it in perfectly, and it's you can make a hundred of them, right? You know, dial it in a little bit, something other than that, and you got a whole bunch of scrap. <laughs> 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 so that's good. That we, I like the way now people will know exactly when we're recording this live podcast um, because um, just look on Mike's Instagram post from yesterday because <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was the same thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> Getting well, double now, duty. I like that. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, that was a good post. I think I liked it. Yeah. All right.
2: You, you didn't yeah. comment.
1: I never come. Well, no. The comments. Oh, Mike, that's yeah, so beautiful. beautiful. Oh, what that's beautiful so. Show. I love your work. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Swoon.
0: I love your book.
2: <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Can I have a
1: sticker? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about glue up thing strategies. That was a really bad transition there. Yeah, that was terrible. All of you, our listeners, have different skill levels, woodworking interests, design aesthetics, makers you admire, workshops, tools, and projects unique to you. The aspects that join this community together are a shared love of the craft, The smell of the workshop, the challenge of perfection, and the chance to create something beautiful. That's why we introduced Fine Woodworking Unlimited, our new membership that gives you access to over 43 years of our content designed to help teach, inspire, and connect with you. Unlimited members have access to everything Fine Woodworking, including our complete online archive, over 55 video workshops, and our iconic magazine delivered right to your door. No matter where you are on your journey today, Unlimited has something to inspire your next step. To learn more, go to finewoodworking.com slash Unlimited. All right, question number three. From Again, another Matt. Uh, I see many of the world's best woodworkers only apply glue to one mating surface of a joint. Not both, as advocated by Hoadley of Fine Woodworking fame. When is it acceptable to apply glue to one surface of a mating joint?
2: I'll address this first okay. because you're going to have a different answer. Yeah, which is, and it's a really cool answer.
1: Well, it's because you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, well, the difference between glue on one surface for two surfaces for me has to do with um, is it a type of joint which um, can be clamped together in such a way that you're increasing the um, amount of pressure on the glue surfaces that sounds somewhat obvious but if you think of a panel glue up edge to edge you put a clamp on there uh the more clamps you put on or the the more you tighten them the more pressure you're putting on that joint um the other type of joint would be like a mortise and tenon joint you can clamp that together all you're doing is keeping that shoulder seated to the opposing piece but you're not adding clamping pressure to the mortise and tenon you're relying on the fit of that joint. So whenever I can't get those two joints to come together with a clamp, like a mortise and tenon joint, I will glue both faces. Um, where I can get some clamping pressure on there, like a panel glue-up, I prefer to glue just one of the two edges. Um for two reasons. One is that you have a certain amount of working time with the glue before it starts to skin over and compromise a glue joint once you get clamps on there. So if I'm gluing every single surface, I'm going to tend to put a thinner coat of glue on each surface, which the thinner coat is going to have a chance to skin over a little bit faster than a thicker coat. And secondly, I'm applying glue to twice as many surfaces, so it takes me twice as long to apply that glue. Uh, conversely, if I put one heavier coat on a single face of that glue up, I can do it twice as fast. And that heavier coat is not going to skin up as fast as a thinner coat. So in a nutshell, I do one surface because it's a lot faster and that has its own benefits.
0: Uh, you really have thought through that though. Well,
2: cause I know Bob has a really good answer for why <laughs> and, you do but, two and surfaces. It's, and
1: it's, and, and, you know, what you said makes total sense the thing, and it's, a part of it is that skinning over thing, um, and, like, if I'm putting, uh, doing an edge joint, you know, a panel or something, I'm going to take the glue, and I will, you know, it's in a bottle, in a glue bottle, uh, and I'm going to put a bead down both surfaces, both edges, and I'm going to put a bead down the middle, okay, and... While it's a bead, I have time. Okay, so because because there's, there's not a lot of air surface to it, right? But then I take my finger and I quickly spread out that bead and distribute the glue evenly over both surfaces. And now I don't have a lot of time because now I have a thin layer of glue, like Mike was talking about. That if I hang out there now, it's going to it'll start to skin over and compromise the joint. So that's that's the the timing thing. Um, As far as I used to only put glue on one edge, okay, and then and I used to tell students I said, yeah, you put it on one edge, you put the two together, you squish them together. Now you got it on both edges. And it always made sense. And, uh, you know, aren't I smart? Um, well, you're
2: smart as Mike.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, then I took one apart once after about four or five minutes. And it wasn't, you know, I hadn't set up yet that I, you know, after 15, 20 minutes, forget it, it's not coming apart. But after about four minutes, I popped it apart. I don't remember why. And there were all of these holidays, these, these dry spots on the part that I didn't glue that, you know, didn't squish on like I had been telling students all these years that was going to right. and it didn't do that. And I was like, okay, that's why you put it on both. A thin layer on both gets you, there's no question about it rather than how many little dry spots are there in there, and you'll never know until the joint fails. It probably won't fail because the yellow glue is, I mean, a glue joint is hard, is harder stronger. A good glue joint is stronger than the wood itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got a little holiday here and there. It's probably not going to be a big deal. Right. But it's there. Right. And Holy knows what he's talking about. I mean— He's smart. <laughs> yeah. Now
0: that's a smart guy. Yes. Yeah. Let's,
1: yes. He knows a lot about yeah. wood. Yeah.
0: There's, there's two totally different answers from two yeah. fairly unimpeachable woodworking authorities that contradict one another. Yeah. I can't, if you said one thing, I'd say, okay, Bob says it. I'm going to go for it. If you said one thing, I'd say, I, same thing. That's the. It must that's, not that's matter. so great about woodworking. Everybody's right. Oh yeah, I don't question Bob's yeah.
2: technique whatsoever. Yeah. I have no arguments against it whatsoever. Exactly. I'm still glowing just one edge. Yeah. <laughs> so that means that's just yeah. the way it,
1: today. Yeah.
2: yeah. Right. This is how I do it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so. I did it that I did it that way for years and years and years. Um, and it was just a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, okay. Change my technique a little bit. It's a minor detail. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not the difference between, you know, make or break. Do you think that something
0: like that matters more if, let's say, your um, edge jointing isn't very, very good?
2: Um, I think the two layers would help, but, you know, get your edge jointing game where it needs to be.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, that, and the thing is that, that you know... What, glue there's no basically no tensile strength to it so that whole oh it's going to fill the gaps right. type of thing yeah. that's that's a fallacy i mean the only place that i know of where that's actually legitimate is um with epoxy yeah mm-hmm. you know i mean the whole oh you're you're putting too much pressure on the joint it's going to uh starve the glue joint um I had some of the people from Franklin at the school years ago uh, type on manufacturers. These are scientists. And um, they told them and said, now, that, that, that's an old wives' tale about, you know, starving the glue joint except with epoxy. And epoxy, I guess you can't do that evidently. Huh. so Cool.
0: All right. Question number four. From Anthony, the last couple of years I've been on a hunt for an 8-inch jointer, and I just recently was able to secure a Craigslist purchase of a 12-inch jointer that I'm pretty excited about. It's Bridgewood 12-inch, 5-horsepower that I picked up a few hours away from a now-retired doormaker. As with most home woodworkers, my jointing experience has been on a 6-inch jointer. What are the potential areas of of concern with a larger jointer? In general, with a joiner, what leads up to an accident? Is it simply being unaware of your hands and proper use?
2: Number one, put a guard on that joiner.
0: Look at that. Yeah, you're right.
2: Let's assume there's a guard on there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because to run stuff with no guard, you have to have a really, really, really good reason. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I have done it.
2: When your stock is a half inch wider than your joiner bed is, that's and you're a really close.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, it's, it's one scary. of those. You, it's scary, yeah. you know, running that thing with that. You just look at that thing spinning around and oh, go, God. "Okay, what yeah. what
0: could happen?" Yeah, twelve inches of joiner head.
1: Yeah, Oof. but okay, so we got that yeah. out of the way. But the thing is, six inches, ten inches, sixteen inches—if it can cut a piece of wood, yeah.
2: They're all wider than your hand. <laughs> fingers
1: are a piece of cake. Yeah, yeah, you know. So it has nothing at all to do with the power. You know, I mean, it can be a three-quarter horsepower motor. It can be a sixteen-quarter ho- horse, you know, motor. It's not going to not going to be any different. Right. With a um,
0: with a larger joiner, wouldn't the the head normally be the, the head the, the head circumference be larger as well, and therefore there'd be a larger mouth opening.
2: Uh, it doesn't necessarily work that way.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah it depends. The beds can sort of come up pretty tight. Regardless. Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, because um, if you look at that picture, the way it comes, it comes up. Um, you know, the 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 bed is following the curvature of the of the um, the head. Okay. The thing where it was where it was a problem was the those square right. head with the Babbitt bearing and the square head and all. Those were finger eaters.
2: Yeah, because your finger okay. can go in way far before it contacts yeah. the, the cutter head itself. Okay. Whereas a round cutter head with the blades only sticking out maybe a sixteenth of an inch, hopefully that's all you're going to hit. But, I mean, they're spinning so fast that uh, there's no good outcome to... Yeah. And you know, getting your fingers close to joint, yeah. So, yeah. so,
0: so your your level of awareness is the same at a six inch joiner as it is a sixteen inch joiner.
2: It is for me. Totally. Yeah, that doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. There's no because it's uh, already code red. <laughs> eight inch joiner. Yeah. yeah.
0: There's there's no um like I know we've we've talked about before, don't you know, twelve inches is as short of a board as you'd want to send over a joiner or a planer. Does that rule apply for the size?
2: I mean there's like what I would do in my shop and what the setups we think are safe in the school. Those are kind of two different-ish things.
1: Yeah. Uh, but even so, some of the stuff it's it's not a I would I would do this myself but not do it in front of people uh-huh. uh it might be a matter of degrees yeah you know like okay i'm gonna tell a student now that thing is 12 inches and uh, or it's it's 10 and a half inches it's not going over the joiner um i might do something myself that was nine and a half inches long right yeah um. As long as I'm going, okay. Think what you're doing. Make yeah. sure that you have a, a push pad and you have a good push pad and be aware of what you're doing because that's a you know. Would I do something like five inches long? No, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's why you have a hand plane. But the the push pad you're doing something like that. And then those push pads. Um, what is a the grout mm-hmm. grout float? The grout yeah. floats yeah. are. Incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. I had those those other push pads that I've had in the school. I'm not sure why I haven't just thrown them yes, all out. Right. The know. little
2: this they're rectangular worth. plastic, the white plastic yeah. with that really hard rubber, yeah. and half of it is always peeled yeah. up. They're, they're worthless. Yeah.
1: They're worthless. And the, these grout floats, the ones there's a soft, squishy one, and it's amazing how good it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could you could. It's it grips. It doesn't matter how smooth it is. It grips it incredibly well and
2: the rule of thumb is um, if the board wasn't there is there anything between your hands and the cutter head Yeah. so if if you have a push pad and the board's not there okay the push pad's going into the cutter head so um, I'm pretty aware anytime um, there are times when my hand goes over the cutter if I'm edge jointing Mm -hmm. a board um, I'm sort of getting better At avoiding that, but I'm always really, really aware when my hand, even if I'm holding a push pad, when my hand is going over that cutter. Um,
0: The the one thing that I do, it might be wrong, but the only joiner I've ever really worked on much at all is that 16-inch joiner, the SEMI, and um, I will move the fence forward. And essentially turn it into a four a inch joiner. joiner. Sure. Right. If I'm, yeah. if I'm, if all I need is four inches of that joiner, yeah. that's all I allow myself.
2: Is that outside of the head? Those were the really sharp blades are. Cause everyone keeps it kicked all the way in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's yeah. that
0: too, but I don't know. It's just, it's a mental thing where it's just well, like, I don't think that's about I've practice. Got, I've got less of the, the blade available to, right. to whatever. Um, so that that's one thing that that I do, and then yeah. I also i i the taller or the wider a piece gets, the longer it has to be for me. So if yeah. you're if you're edge jointing a twelve inch wide piece, it's got to be two foot long for me because I I did have a, a piece dive into the head one time, mm-hmm. and I had, you know it was it was wide, but this this i.e. center of gravity or whatever was too high for it, and that was the only time I've ever. Had to do a had to do a check you know mm-hmm. of of my underwear after after using the the joiner mm-hmm. but um i i try and keep pieces larger than they need to
1: be it's one of those things if you're ever uncomfortable with it that's why god invented hand plates <laughs> yeah. you know uh you know if you're not uncomfortable if you're not comfortable then just stop. Any any machine technique, if you're not comfortable with it, then stop and figure out why. Because it might be something, oh, good thing I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Or, it, and you know, you can always try a dry run with no power. hmm And you go, okay, now this is doable without, you know, not a problem. Uh, or you go... Yeah, do it a different way. Right. Plus, it's a great chance to get your camera angles right. <laughs> huh?
0: <laughs> but I,
2: I have found that a lot of times I'll do something in the shop. It's like, yeah, I get through it. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily run a class having yeah. do the same way. But when I really stop and break it down and think about it, okay, what's a good way for a class to do this process? Yeah. I end up doing it that way myself from that point. You know, because after actually thinking about because it.
1: Because you've thought about it, you've yeah. analyzed it, and you've gone, this is a better way and a <laughs> yes. safer way. Yes. Why keep doing it the dumb, dangerous way?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Episode title right
1: there. <clears throat>
0: All right. Let's let's uh, let's hit some listener comments on YouTube uh, on uh, Shop Talk Live 173 from David McClengahan. I could not figure out what this was referring to, but I I got it. Go metric, young man. It's so much easier than a random Vic Teslin rules. Then great show. Vic Teslin wasn't on that show, and we didn't talk about metric at all, but I think I was complaining about 30 seconds of an inch on a combo square. Hmm. They're really little. And pointless and annoying. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far.
1: I'd just go, they're really little. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of them. (laughs)
0: Well said, Bob. All right. And then on iTunes, a five-star review from Paint by Lumbers. Uh, I am a woodshop teacher and love listening on my commute. The show gets me going to share my wood geekery with my students. Thanks for sharing your mistakes and successes in such a fun way. I thought a podcast on woodworking would be done, but you have honed it in. (laughs) Yikes. Keep it up. (laughs) All right. I have a I have a Instagram recommendation. All right. Sidecar furniture. Oh yeah. David Johnson. Yeah. Go follow him. That's a great feat. What's it called? Uh it's he's in LA area. West Coast guy. He does a lot of seat weaving. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, a lot of Danish cord and um intricate weavings and he's furniture restoration as well. I think he's doing an article with us. I think so. I think Anisa's working on something. Yeah, just great feed, Uh great pictures, interesting stuff, Um, content you
1: don't really see anywhere else. Yeah, so really cool stuff. CT dot. What's my Instagram? (laughs) CT Valley. I remember. There's a good one.
0: Mike, you got anything?
2: Not anymore. (laughs) Yeah, go buy a uh, go out and buy a fresh bottle of glue. Nothing better than a fresh bottle of glue.
0: You know what? I bought a fresh bottle of glue the other day because I've been using the leftovers at the shop, and a brand new bottle of glue. Damn, does that glue come out fast? I was gluing up a little tendon at home. It was
1: like, <laughs> go figure.
0: <laughs> all right. That's all for this episode of shop talk live. If you have questions, you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shop. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening and stick around for a remix because Bob said, dub it way too many times for that not to happen. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's all about the grain. The grain dubbing. 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 It's all about the grain. The grain dub it over. It's all about the grain. The grain ruin it. It's all about the grain. The grain gets people going. It's all about the grain. The grain dubbing.